We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. You know, Vivek is, re- is positive on nuclear power, which is good. I like nuclear power. But if you're going to be positive about technology's ability to decarbonize us, you should look at the technology where the massive cost declines have happened and the massive installation boom is happening. And you should, you know, you cannot just let evidence just bounce off your skull, right? A lot of people in the Republican Party, um, Sean Hannity, Hugh Hewitt, uh, Mark Thiessen, and a bunch, you know, a number of other prominent, you know, sort of conservative commentators said, what? What the hell are you talking about, Vivek? Like, they've just spent all this time, you know, sort of advocating this strong defense posture against China. And here comes Vivek and says, well, all we really need is TSMC. And after that, China can just invade. So, so they're flabbergasted by that. Uh, oh, and he also said that if we gave, you know, uh, AR-15s to everyone in Taiwan, <laughs> if Taiwan had the Second Amendment, then China would never invade. Which is just like, I, that's like, I think that's what someone called uh, chat GPT. But that's an insult to OpenAI. OpenAI, chat GPT is smarter than that. Like, that's Republican Mad Libs. Trump sounds like a reality TV show host. Vivek sounds like a reality TV show contestant. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. The uh, the mountain man, Eric Erez. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, it's a little bit of a bet with a friend seeing how, how long I could go. And um, I think I'm just a few weeks away. Uh, but, Wait, what uh, do you win if you, if you win the bet? <laughs> um, pride, uh, <laughs> um, which is, uh, yeah. Um, the most important commodity. Exactly. Um, I don't know how to segue pride to Vivek, but uh, you wrote uh, a great piece uh, about uh, Vivek, your critiques of some of his um, some of his platform. Um, so excited to do a deep dive today. All right. But can I continue to pronounce it Vivek as I always have? <laughs> yes. You can I understand the true pronunciation is somewhere between our pronunciations. <laughs> yes. Yes. He does say Vivek like cake. Um, but, uh, yeah, you can call, well, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful except for the entirety of my post, which was massively disrespectful. Um, let's get a little like when, when, when George HW Bush pronounced Iraq as Iraq, just to (laughs) annoy Saddam Hussein. (laughs) Yes, Yes, Um, exactly. So even before getting into it, why does he, why does he frustrate you so much? Well, because, you know, um, I know a lot of people in the tech industry who are interested in him and I, over the last um, you know, few weeks, I've had a number of conversations where I'm talking to someone and they said, well, who do you want for president? I said, well, Biden, of course. And they said, but he's so old. I'm like, yeah, but you know, like, who's better than Biden? And they said, well, you know, I've been hearing some interesting things from uh, Vivek. Um, no, nobody pronounced it Vivek when they asked me about it, but um, they, maybe they should have. Uh, but then they said, yeah, I've been hearing interesting things about Vivek. And um, you know, like I, I'm interested in what he has to say. I kind of like, I kind of like this guy. I like the cut of his jib. No one used that expression, but I'm just summarizing. And um, and I said, really? Um, and so I decided to to write this post. I usually don't wade into you know political candidates uh, much, um, 
but but I I think that this is something that needed to be said because, um, you know, tech is in the, the tech world is in sort of a, a bubble politically, uh, insulated from a lot of the you know they're, they're mostly away from the East Coast, uh, not much connection with the establishment in D.C. Um, insulated from a lot of political stuff that happens. You know, most people tend to not touch the tech industry no matter what. Um, and uh, although that you know, may have changed a little bit now, but not as much as people think. Uh, and so, so I think that, that you know, a lot of tech people sit there sort of generating their own ideas about politics. Also, a lot of people move here from other countries and you know, they, they understand their home country's politics and then American politics are, are bizarre and new to them. And so then you know, they look at this guy, he's like, well, this guy sounds like he's sensible, says sensible things. And, um, and so you know, that's, that's another reason tech's in a bubble. And so essentially, uh, I hope at some point that candidates emerge that champion the kind of technocratic, meritocratic uh, ideals that a lot of t people in the tech industry have and sort of present that idea and that viewpoint. That doesn't mean I think it's always the right idea, but I think it needs to be out there. You know, we need uh, technocratic candidates who apply the lessons that of, of, you know, the tech industry to policy. And... Um, uh, Vivek just does, does not appear to be that. You know, he, he's not that. And I think that some people think he is that, and some people like him for other reasons, but he, he constantly talks about meritocracy and competence. And I think that that's a big issue. Recently, we've had the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action. Um, we've had, uh, you know, just a lot of political battles about, like, canceling standardized tests and making math curricula easier so everybody can pass math. And so he comes along and says, no, you know, meritocracy is important. Competence is important. And I think that that's important. You know, I, I, I you know, agree with that really uh, to a large extent. Unfortunately, he just doesn't uh, demonstrate this, the same, you know, competence that he, that he talks about. I mean, obviously he's jumped through successfully through, through hoops in life and made a lot of money, you know, selling his company. But, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he brings technocratic competence to the world of politics you know yeah. and so so anyway that's my basic thinking here and so where are people let, let's go through some of your some of your posts and and talk about the areas where you uh disagree with them or feel like he's confused or yeah right so for example um you know energy and climate change now, I understand that if you're going to be a politician in the Republican Party right now, you can't just say democratic-sounding things on climate change. You can't say, well, climate change is a big problem, and we're going to address it. You can't just... That, that's, that's correct. I mean, climate change is a big problem, and we are going to address it, and we should, and we're doing it now. But um, that's not a thing you can really say to the, the GOP base, the GOP audience. You, know? you, um, you have to either raise doubts about the science or, uh, at the very least, you know, sort of slam uh, democratic policies for dealing with climate change. And so, um, you know, but for, for Vivek, it's not just that, right? He also has a lot of real concern for the developing world. Uh, his parents are from the developing world. And he thinks that, you know, if we, if we just ban fossil fuels, cut off fossil fuels, blah, 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 it'll stop the development of these developing countries and they won't escape poverty, blah, blah. So I think he's honestly concerned about that as well. Uh, in addition to sort of pandering to the Republican base. But the thing is, and, and this frustrates me about many Republicans, not just him, but it's something that as a tech person he really should understand, um, the game has really, really changed. 
in terms of the economics of climate change because technology changed the game. We did technological innovation that has really changed uh, what we can do with regards to climate change. So if you go back to 2010, it really did look like we were facing this um, sort of trade-off between economic growth and prosperity on one hand or stopping climate change on the other. And I think a lot of people on both sides of the political divide latched onto that trade-off so strongly that they didn't notice when it stopped existing. And so you had leftists basically decide that climate change was the, the hook or the handle that they would be able to use to destroy capitalism because once you accept the kind of degrowth idea that the only way to stop climate change is by stopping the economy, then you can say, well, haha, we can kill capitalism. We have to kill capitalism because climate change. And I think a lot of leftist people got that idea in their heads and haven't gotten it out yet. Um, on the right, people got this idea that, you know, um, climate change will impoverish us and we can't do it, therefore. And, uh, and so I think that they haven't gotten that out of their heads. Uh, they, they, you know, along with that was, the, was this sort of negative polarization against renewable energy technology. So this idea that solar can't work and, you know, solar keeps working, you know, the cost dropped insanely much and it's just getting deployed at, at you know, exponentially increasing um, rates all over the world by developing countries and developed countries and uh, providing an increasingly large percentage of our actual electricity generation that we're getting is from renewables and proving itself extremely reliable in emergency situations like in Texas uh, and, and many other places. And, you know, these, the, the Republicans are still really stuck in 2010. They don't understand that a technological revolution has happened. Um, electric cars, similar. You know, um, it's like you, re Republicans basically don't understand the, the importance of the, the EV revolution, although some people are now buying EVs. You know, they understand it maybe on a... Um, you know, on a uh, an individual level in terms of the economic incentives, but then don't necessarily understand that, you know, um, our, our future is not to have gasoline-powered vehicles. Like, we just won't do that anymore. And, and, the, and, and then that's not going to destroy the oil industry, but it is going to shrink it somewhat. Um, and I think that they just don't, you know, they don't accept or understand that. Um, but, but a tech person should. You know, like if you are a tech person, you should know who Elon Musk is at the very least. You, and you should know what Tesla is and you should know what that means and what that does. Basically, if you think like we have to keep burning gasoline in order to, you know, still get around and have good transportation, you've ignored the existence of Elon Musk. Like how? How do you do that as a tech person? I don't understand. And, um, and what the Repu if the Republican Party has tech people in it, they should be educating and teaching the Republican Party about the opportunities offered by cheap electric cars and cheap solar power. Uh, you know, they should be saying, look, the solar power is being built in red states, right? We know that, that red states are the ones that benefit because guess why? Red states are actually the ones that allow construction. Blue states don't allow any construction. Red states do. Uh, that's only slight exaggeration. Um, and, and so it's, you know, the shift of solar power is going to massively benefit the economy of red states. Texas is, is overtaking California in solar. It hasn't yet, but it will. And um, yeah, the, the South, A, is sunnier, and B, has cheaper land and less regulation. So that's who's going to benefit, and that includes jobs, and it includes just cheap energy, electricity, you know, just everything. It's great. And then, you know, electric cars um, are going to be built... Uh, you know, in not cheaper non-union states. And those are going to be red states. Those are going to be like Tennessee and Kentucky and Alabama. That's where the electric cars are going to be built. Michigan is going to find itself, you know, in Ohio, or we, the, the more unionized states are going to find themselves having difficulty keeping up 
in terms of construction. So it's, again, going to benefit red states. Someone on the Republican side needs to be telling this to the Republican voters. They need to be educating their voters instead of just, you know, pandering to them. But, and the, but the problem is that Vivek isn't the guy to do this because, A, he's just focused on being the slick salesman who just says whatever necessary to get attention. But, B, because his, you know, maybe he was just the only thinking about biotech stuff, which is what his company was in. Maybe he doesn't know about, you know, deep tech and energy tech and things like that. But, um, but he, his mind is stuck in 2010. He really thinks that... Uh, you know, fossil fuels are much, much cheaper than renewables. He just has not looked at the graphs. And a tech person should look at the graphs. A tech person should know these numbers. I understand Vivek to be taking the views of Alex Epstein, uh, who wrote, I think, the book, The Case for Fossil Fuels, um, Bjorn Lomborg, um, who wrote another book, and maybe one other climate person, or at least he mentioned that in an interview, that that's where his biggest influences are. Um, yeah. Have you followed? My guess the- is Michael Schellenberger as well. Yeah, yeah. Another. So you followed some of some of their thinking, and of and and so what would they say in response to your outline? They would they would disagree with you on the renewables and or, or they absolutely would. They would uh, they would come up with a bunch of points that keep getting proven wrong. So they would talk about um, they would say, well, you know, of course, solar module prices have come down, but installation costs haven't come down as much. Well, that's true, but installation costs have come down plenty. Like if you look at uh, you know the balance of system costs. If you just look at overall costs, in, installation costs are rising as a percent of total costs, but they're also falling. And um, and you know if you if you just look at the actual solar being built, in you know Vietnam is building solar like crazy, the Philippines, India is building solar like crazy, and um, you know it's not just it's not just China which may have these political incentives, blah blah. blah. It's just these countries, all these countries see that this is a cheap way to get energy, and that's all they care about. You know they don't care about. Some, they don't care about Greta Thunberg. They don't care about like some European moralizers telling them, oh, you need to stop burning fossil fuels. They don't give a shit about that. They care only about growing their economy, increasing, you know, output, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That's all they care about. And they are installing solar at breakneck speeds. Um, And so, so um, that's just something that the people like Bjorn Lomborg or whoever don't, uh, don't understand. Now, now Alex Epstein is right in terms of the past, right? It was, even though we have global warming, it was great that we used fossil fuels to get us to this point. It really boosted us to this point. That doesn't mean that we're going to use them, you know, in the future, right? We should probably think about leaving a little bit of those fossil fuels in the ground in case civilization collapses and needs to restart. But that's another discussion entirely. Uh, basically, you know, um, looking back, we don't want to de- say, you know, we should never have industrialized with fossil fuels. We should have. We did the right thing. But that doesn't mean we'll use it forever, Right, like steamboats are amazing. They enabled the first wave of globalization. They were such improvement over what came before. We just don't use them anymore. You ever see a coal-fired steamboat? No, because other stuff's better. And so we, the our starter kit in terms of technology doesn't mean that's the thing we're going to have to use forever. <laughs> right? You don't have yeah. to. You don't have to use your ancient technology forever, even if it was great that we had it. You know, it was great that we had like you know horse-drawn plows. I love that we use horse-drawn plows for thousands and thousands of years, and 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 now we don't need them. Right. And so, and so, uh, meanwhile, Bjorn Lomborg has just, he's very fixated on this, uh, on just rebutting whatever the environmentalists say and, you know, being this contrarian and he ends up being completely irrelevant. Like Bjorn Lomborg is not, ha- has not had useful points that have proven out ever, right. uh, in the discussion, you know, Vivek is re- is positive on nuclear power, which is good. I like nuclear power, but if you're going to be positive about technologies 
ability to decarbonize us, you should look at the technology where the massive cost declines have happened and the massive installation boom is happening. And you should, you know, you cannot just let evidence just bounce off your skull, right? You like, like radio waves off a tinfoil hat. They don't really bounce off. But anyway, don't, don't use a tinfoil hat. Um, but you shouldn't be able to, to think like that if you're, if you're going to be thought of as a, uh, as a smart tech person. Right. And um, and Michael Schellenberger is just wrong about everything and sustains his uh, opinions via just sheer perpetual aggression. People don't want to argue with Michael Schellenberg because he's a jerk and will just mix it up with you and yell at you and say mean things. And he has a coterie of about 20 people who will just yell at you and say mean things if you disagree with him. And but he's just completely off the rails. I'm sure Vivek is is not necessarily reading the um, the best sources here. Are you saying they're not sending their best? They're not sending their best. I mean, <laughs> they, don't, they don't have best because reality says that solar works. Right. It's cheap. It generates a lot of electricity. Everyone's installing it. It works. Reality says it works. You know, the best can never be anyone who just flatly just denies reality. And yet, you know, that's still a meme on both the, you know, among the Republican Party and also among, um, you know, various leftists. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. I think Mark Andreessen even tweeted a few months ago, like build, frack, drill. You know, he had a, like, is yeah, that? Well, we absolutely should. I mean, like, well, yeah. that, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm right. not saying that's a bad idea. I'm saying that, like, you know, in actual, and, and in fact, we've been doing that. You know, all, all these people never mentioned, by the way, that under Biden, we've actually fracked and drilled more than under uh, Trump or, or previous presidents. But, um, and that's because of the war in Ukraine, right? We, um, we wanted to, uh, to screw Russia. And so we drilled more oil. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, you know, um, so we did. Uh, we did that. But, and, and in fact, Biden was looking like he was going to start re uh, restricting oil drilling in the first year of his term in 2021. He looked like he was going to be very restrictive toward fossil fuels. War in Ukraine completely changed that. And he became ultra super permissive and just encouraged fracking drilling. So now we're just, we are building fracking and drilling. So Mark Andreessen should be happy. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure he listens to our podcast. Uh, <laughs> He might, yeah. Um, he he probably does actually, um, <laughs> yeah. but then but he he should he should absolutely be happy now, uh, but but that doesn't take away the importance of renewables. Yeah, like you know, um, uh, just because you build frack drill doesn't mean that you should not build electric cars. Got it. You know what I mean? And so, so like do both of those. So the, en the enlightened view, or if if Vivek agreed with you on the or you know had your data and agreed with it, his his view would 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 not emphasize so much on fossil fuels, but also emphasize um, renewables and solar and, you know, sort of be up to date there. Right. Is that, is that accurate? Solar power, battery powered cars. And I understand that part of it is, part of it is just what he has to say for Republicans, which is unfortunate, but part of it is just his own, he's not caught up and uh, not caught up on the tech stuff. And so that's the, that's the first one. The, the second thing I talked about in my post was foreign policy. So should I go into that one? Yeah, yeah. let's do that. So I'm not, I'm not a foreign policy expert, but some of the things that he has said were just, um, were, were absolutely nuts. Um, uh, so for example, uh, I think most prominently, he said that we should uh, achieve semiconductor independence by um, 2028. Uh, of course, he didn't specify what that meant. And, uh, you know, Biden is the first person who's ever tried to do anything in that direction. So he should probably, you know, the CHIPS Act is unprecedented in terms of achieving semiconductor self-sufficiency. Mm -hmm. And so Vivek should say, well, good job, Biden, if he really believes that, but who knows. 
Um, but anyway, he, what he said was, once we do that, in 2028, we should, we, should, um, know, we should signal that our commitment to defend Taiwan is now done. In other words, uh, just tell China, China, don't invade Taiwan before 2028. After that, it's okay. Hmm. Inviting a foreign power to, to conquer a neighboring country like that would be absolutely catastrophic. It's, it's really, really dumb. Like, uh, for a number of reasons. The first reason is that Japan is definitely going to get involved, and they're our ally, and that will pull us in, and we'll be involved anyway. So we've just invited uh, an invasion. The second thing is that that becomes an open invitation to countries to just launch more invasions to create an unstable security environment for the world. You know, whereas if you just say, look, China, don't invade Taiwan, there's a good chance that they just won't. You know, like the, the, the idea that they definitely will do it um, and that we're, it's just a question of when and all we have to do is delay it until, uh, you know, until we can get, until TSMC no longer matters. Um, that's dumb. Because, so, so it's also true that, um, you know, TSMC is not the big reason why we would want to defend Taiwan. It is not to ensure our, our supply of these chips. Certainly we would, you know, there would be economic disruptions from having chip supply disrupted like that, but it, it, that is not the main reason that, we're, that we don't want China to conquer Taiwan. And, the, you know, the main reasons are things like we don't want people to start invading places and that to become the international norm. We don't want um, uh, China to threaten Japan we don't want our security commitment to look fickle. So if we say, okay, China, you can invade Taiwan, that's fine, after 2020, after we no longer economically depend on them, then everyone else knows, okay, if America doesn't economically depend on you, they will let your neighbors conquer you and they won't help you. So that gives a massive incentive to every country in the world to A, arm up, possibly with nuclear weapons, because that's, how you, that's the ultimate deterrent against a bigger country, right? Uh, so there'll be nuclear proliferation, but also there will be a massive incentive to make America economically dependent on them somehow. Yeah. Because that's the only, that's what prevents, you know, that's what gets America to defend you. The only thing, you know, is if, so, so that's what would actually happen from that. So it's a really, really bad idea. And I think that a lot of people in the Republican party, um, Sean Hannity, Hugh Hewitt, uh, Mark Thiessen, and a bunch, you know, a number of other prominent, you know, conser sort of conservative commentators said, What? What the hell are you talking about, Vivek? Like, they've just spent all this time, you know, sort of advocating this strong defense posture against China. And here comes Vivek and says, well, all we really need is TSMC. And after that, China can just invade. So, so they're flabbergasted by that. And that wasn't his only bad foreign policy thing either. I can talk about more things if you want. Um, outside of Russia and China? Outside of Russia and China. Well, there's, there's Russia stuff too. Uh, oh, and he also said that if we gave... Um, you know, uh, AR-15s to everyone in Taiwan. <laughs> if Taiwan had the Second Amendment, then China would never invade. Which is just, like, I, that's like, I think that's what someone called uh, ChatGPT, but that's an insult to OpenAI. OpenAI, ChatGPT is smarter than that. Like, that's Republican Mad Libs. You know, AR-15s won't shoot down missiles. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, when you I, I describe his uh, Ukraine or Russia take, so his, his Ukraine-Russia take, I mean, like, you know, on the right, um, you know, sort of being anti-Ukraine anti has become, uh, is almost becoming a litmus test. Yeah. Like, you know, you either have to say Ukraine's a bunch of Nazis and Zelensky is evil and bullshit, bullshit. Or you can at least say, well, shouldn't we be spending this money on something else? Shouldn't we be sending this money to Hawaii? Shouldn't we be sending this money to blah, blah, blah? And so, like, 
this is, you know, he sort of has to say this, but um, so what he, he actually said was this. He said, we should let Russia keep, you know, keep its, uh, its territorial gains in Ukraine. First of all, you know, we don't actually have the ability to do that. We can withdraw support for Ukraine, but that doesn't mean Europe withdraws support from Ukraine. They can support Ukraine just fine, and Ukraine will keep fighting. Uh, so, so actually, we don't have the ability. Like, this whole idea that, that Ukraine is just this, you know, is just like on puppet strings from Biden and that we can just make them do whatever we want is it's bullshit. Like, it's just factually false. Europe will continue to support Ukraine fighting the Russians even if we withdraw support, and they are easily capable of doing it. They have all they need to do it. Uh, in fact, this will make them do it more. But that aside, what he said was, he said, I will accept Russian control of the occupied territories and pledge to block Ukraine's candidacy for NATO in exchange for Russia exiting its military alliance with China. Uh, in this way, I will elevate Russia as a strategic check on China's designs in East Asia. So basically, the idea is, his idea is that we will, Russia will now be our ally against China. Um, that is stupid. <laughs> Like Russia's alliance with China is absolutely its most important alliance, and there's no possible way that Russia is going to be better friends with us than with China. They are economically dependent on China, and even if we withdraw sanctions and buy a bunch of their oil and stuff, their economic dependence on China will not go away. And they, you know, Putin is not going to say, you know, I was your enemy, like, and my entire, my, all of Russian, like, state TV and national apparatus was demonizing the West for, like, years and years and years, and now suddenly they're our friends. I mean, like, Stalin was able to do something like that in World War II, but Putin is not really able to do that, but even, he, he, there's no reason for him to do that. You know, China hasn't invaded him like Hitler invaded Stalin, right? Hitler betrayed Stalin, so Stalin, you know, reversed course because here Hitler was just stomping down his door but then but then if china invaded russia maybe so maybe this would happen right but it's not sort of like a full-scale chinese invasion of russian territory some concessions in ukraine are not going to flip russia to our side that's just dumb and so uh you know people people had hoped in previous decades you know in the 2000s people hoped that russia might be on our side and might provide a check against china if we could make friends with putin and then, um, you know, that was when, when George W. Bush uh, said that he saw into Putin's soul. There was this hope in the 2000s that we would be able to flip Russia to our side and sort of use them as a check on China. It didn't happen. It didn't pan out. Putin wasn't interested. His interest in dominating, you know, Europe and the periphery on that side was, were much more important than his interest in trying to fight China for influence in Asia. And he just didn't go for it. And the idea that he'd go for it now, after we spent all this time fighting him, that he'd go for the same deal that we, he failed to go for in, in the 2000s is utterly wishful thinking, whistling in the dark. This, this idea was called the reverse Kissinger, by the way, because Kissinger um, sort of flipped Maoist China and got China to quasi-ally with us against the Soviet Union in the later Cold War. And it was, you know, that was helpful for winning the Cold War, the first Cold War. Um, but we're not going to be able to pull the reverse thing because Russia's just, you know, in a very different place than China was in 1973. And... Um, Anyway, so the point being, um, this is not a good idea, but it's the kind of thing that people used to talk about a while ago. And it, again, shows that Vivek is stuck in the past. Yeah. And if you had to steel man any part of his foreign policy a bit more than you just did, what do you think is the most charitable, uh, charitable view? I mean, you know, he, he definitely recognizes that China's a threat. Like, that's good. You know, the, like Trump might say something like, I'll just make a deal with Xi Jinping. And 
but you know, Vivek is kind of trending in that direction. He does think he could make a deal with Putin. He does think he could make a de facto deal with Xi Jinping to allow him to invade Taiwan after 2028. I don't see much of a steel man here, honestly. Like, I haven't seen anything smart from, from Vivek on this. And I understand the Republican Party's in a weird place where, like, you have to say, you have to come up with some reason. What he should have gone for instead was the Elbridge-Colby thing. Now, Elbridge-Colby is this guy who recommends pivoting from support Ukraine support to, you know, shoring up defense of Taiwan and, and shoring up our presence in the Pacific to deter China. And that is smart. Elbridge Colby is actually smart about that, and that's why we need Europe to start taking over, you know, Ukraine support, which they actually are doing. Like, um, you know, Germany and Britain especially have have started ramping up their Ukraine support, um, and and we're going to eventually draw it down because um, most of our support was actually just in terms of giving them a whole bunch of old surplus weapons that we now have basically given them. And Europe is increasing ammunition production, and they're going to be more responsible for supplying Ukraine with ammunition to continue the fight against Russia. And then we will pivot to Asia because we're sort of the only force that can, you know, sort of hold back China there. And we need to do that, and we're going to do that. And that's what Vivek should have, should have said. He should have, you know, that, that scratches the Republican itch to reduce support to Ukraine while still, um, you know, while taking advantage of the Republican desire to stand against China. And yet it is a sensible position and it's something that you could implement in a sensible way as president, uh, you know, that whereas tossing out rhetoric on the campaign trail. So he should have gone for Elbridge Colby's idea, um, but he didn't. And other Republicans are going to do this, I predict. Not Trump. Trump just does whatever he wants. But I think in general, the Republican Party is going to uh, embrace Elbridge Colby thought. Hmm. Can you compare um, Biden's foreign policy approach with um Trump's and Obama's. So Obama was very much stuck in the past. I, I, the longer time has gone on, the more I think Obama's foreign policy was bad. You know, I, I thought it was fine at the time because you know we killed Bin Laden and like we weren't obviously we weren't starting any more wars and we drew down troops in Afghanistan even if we didn't completely withdraw. And we, um, you know, Obama's foreign policy looked fine at the time, but now I realize that it was sowing the seeds of a lot of big problems, especially. In terms of Russia and China, Obama completely missed the uh, the the he he missed how um, irredentist Putin was, how how set Putin was on sort of recovering territory that he thought should belong to Russia, and he missed. But even more importantly, Obama still thought that China was a partner and that economic engagement with China would make China more liberal. You know years and years after that had proven to be no longer true. Like, the, you know, even any observer could see that, that economic growth was entrenching the CCP was, you know, and that, and that the, you know, China was really backsliding on human rights and openness of every sort. And Obama could see that and he just didn't do anything about it. You know, he just, uh, he kept, he kept being a believer in economic engagement with China that that would somehow solve all our problems, which is the Bill Clinton idea, which was, which was might have been a good try at the beginning, you know, but but failed, ultimately failed. And, and by the time Obama came around, he should have seen that it failed. Um, so those were Obama's mistakes. Now, Trump really shook things up the, and the shakeup was beneficial. So um, Trump uh, recognized that economic that competition with China involved economic competition. And that was a thing that some people like, you know, Democrat Chuck Schumer had recognized um, or, or some people on the Republican side, too. Some people had recognized this, but it, it was still the sort of minority voice and the dominant majority voice was just like free trade, engagement, blah, blah, blah. The same kind of stuff that worked, you know, in the late Cold War. And so um, 
that was still very much the 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 sort of set thing. And a lot of American businesses were making a lot of money in China at the time, so they're not anymore. Uh, and now they're getting out, but they were making money at the time. So that you know, the Chamber of Commerce would say, like, oh no, we have to engage with China. Let's not fight them. Trump came in like a wrecking ball and just shook that up. Right? He just said, um, no, China's our economic competitor. We are going to beat them. You know, and he didn't actually have plans to do that. Tariffs weren't very effective at that, but. He changed the consensus, and after that, Biden came in and basically kept that consensus and the tariffs, you know, and the export controls. Uh, so Trump's export controls, which were designed by the security services, but were you know implemented by Trump against ZTE and Huawei, later expanded to include like lots the entire Chinese semiconductor industry, basically. Um, those export controls, the, and, and and all kinds of policies that that Trump did were expanded by the Biden administration because we got to see what worked and what didn't. It was an experiment that no other president might have done. Trump gets credit for all that. His pol- Biden's policies in uh, fighting China are more, you know, economically, are more uh, effective than Trump's were. Uh, but it's but he had Trump as a base to build on. What Biden has done much better than Trump is leverage alliances. So Trump was trying to start trade wars with Japan over stuff that hasn't mattered since like the early 90s. Because that's when Trump's, you know, if, if Vivek's brain is stuck in 2010, Trump's brain, you know, Vivek's brain is stuck basically when he was doing his like company, right? When his, his heyday, he's, he's stuck in that, that mode. Trump's heyday was like late 80s, early 90s, right? So he's stuck in that time. And, uh, and so Trump just, you know, he tried to start trade wars with Japan and Korea uh, he pulled us out of the TPP, which was a, supported by the left as well, but was a boneheaded move, made it very much more difficult to build up alliances in Southeast Asia. Um, and so, you know, I'm going to write about that soon. So, so Trump was very stupid about fighting China geopolitically and militarily, whereas on economics, he shook things up in a necessary way. He was, he was dumb on the, the alliances. And so Biden has just been so much better. He, Biden has done uh, the Quad which is essentially an India-Japan alliance with the United States and Australia sort of standing by. Um, but it is essentially a facilitated India-Japan alliance. Biden is about to travel to Vietnam to sign a comprehensive strategic partnership, which is the, you know, Vietnam's Communist Party or whatever. That's their term for alliance. Um, so Biden is, is, you know, going to gonna make deals with Vietnam. He's made deals with India, you know, hosting Modi and, and doing all this stuff in defiance of much of the progressive movement, by the way, who despises Modi. And, and Biden has, has embraced Modi despite, you know, his flaws uh, and, and some of the bad things he's done. Biden has embraced him for geostrategic purposes and economic purposes. That was, you know, a smart move from the perspective of American interests. You know, think what you will about, like, human rights and, and blah. Like, you know, we embraced Mao's China and they were a hell of a lot worse than Modi. Um, and China is a much bigger threat than the USSR was in economic terms. So, you know, Biden did all those things better than Trump in terms of alliances and multilateralism. Uh, Biden has also started putting more bases in the Philippines. Trump liked to withdraw from overseas bases because he's fundamentally isolationist, looking back to the 1920s. Um, whereas Biden has been putting bases in, he, basically the Philippines are allowing us to build bases in the Philippines again. That's a big deal. Like it also had to do with a leadership change in the Philippines itself. But that's really important because the Philippines kicked us out of our, of our naval base there because of the legacy of colonialism. Um, you know, we, we colonized them 100 years ago, and they're mad. They're, and it made good politics to kick us out of a military base there. Now the Philippines is saying, okay, 
you know, now that China's been bullying the Philippines out of their maritime territory, and so, you know, seizing little, like, shoals and reefs and stuff, and so Philippines like, okay, build some bases, and now we're building bases that are much closer to Taiwan than any other bases that we had. In other words, given those new bases, we will much more easily be able to foil a Chinese attack on Taiwan than we were. Biden did that, and there's no way Trump would have done that. You know, he was just the opposite of what he was interested in. So Biden's foreign policy is a lot better than Trump's was, uh, especially as regards great power competition. But Trump made needed changes over Obama, who was probably the worst of all in, of those three. Bush, I would guess, is worse than Obama in your book? Worse. Yeah. 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 Bush, um, Bush just took our, our post-Cold War <laughs> goodwill and, you know, whatever, and, and pissed it away while changing our military into one designed to fight like guys in the mountains in Afghanistan instead of China. Less said about that, the better. <laughs> <laughs> How would you define your ideal foreign policy? It's, it's not isolationist, but it's not, you know, needlessly getting into, you know, sort of needless wars. What, what are the terms that you would use to define your ideal foreign policy? So we basically need to focus on allies and focus on defense. I would characterize China and Russia as a new axis, which may also include lesser countries like, you know, Iran and North Korea, maybe. Uh, maybe Iran, it's not clear yet. Uh, they're, they're weird. But definitely North Korea. Um, and so this, this is, together, Russia and China, you know, with China's newfound economic might and Russia's just sheer aggression and size and resources, that constitutes a block that can, that can potentially overpower us. The United, States, the United States fighting alone against China and Russia would likely lose um, because China can outmanufacture us by quite a lot. You know, they have almost double our manufacturing capacity uh, and four times our population, so they could increase even more, um, whereas Russia has just infinite resources and, and a lot of nukes. And so together against Russia and China, the United States would lose. And so the only way we can actually stand against Russia and China is with allies. But also the increasing aggression of China and Russia, you know, China's aggression toward Taiwan and the South China Sea and India, uh, Russia's aggression in Europe, um, these have given us an opening to shift our foreign policy toward helping defend. Now, what this used to be called was offshore balancing, but really it's more like, you know, what we did in the early Cold War. So what we did in the Korean War, you know, we helped South Korea defend, but then when we had the chance, we didn't uh, advance and conquer North Korea like MacArthur wanted. We, we basically provided a defensive bulwark. Instead of trying to do what we did during the interventionist, the so-called liberal interventionist era after the Cold War, where we tried to promote our values, force Serbia to do what we wanted, force you know, Iraq to do what we wanted, all these things. Instead, earlier during the Cold War, we played defense against the communists, and that worked really well. And so we have to go back toward playing defense, back toward multilateralism, strong defense together with of strong defense of other countries' territorial integrity together with our allies, while promoting tighter cooperation between those. That's what I want. I want us to be the anti-empire, not the empire. And you feel like Biden's been the closest to that that we've had in some time. He is. You know, we still there's still some changes that need to be made. We still need to evolve to be better. Um, we we are not doing well enough on the economic side yet. We need a new TPP type of thing to bind the country. You know, countries like Vietnam and Indonesia t and India too to up to the the new you know loose federation of democracies that we're building. Blah blah blah. We need we need more on the economic side than we've got. Yeah, basically, that, that's the number one thing where Biden hasn't done much yet because he's too afraid to try TPP again. He's afraid that the backlash against globalization and against trade agreements is still too strong. And he's probably, to some degree, captured by unions who don't like that idea as well.
Yeah. So uh, here's where Republicans could really shine because they don't care about unions. Um, Republicans could um, could definitely make those sort of uh, multilateral trade agreements that can solidify our alliances if they were interested in internationalism at all. They have the opportunity to do this because unlike Biden, they're not really beholden to union power. Uh, so that's that's one place where Biden could really improve. Um, another thing that we have not improved that Republicans could improve is the defense industrial base. Um, we so so uh, you know we should really get Chris Power on here to talk about this, and I'm going to interview him for my blog. Uh, he's he's the founder of Hadrian, and then uh, he will just go off on this. Uh, United States used to be like at, you know in early '90s we were able to make over 10 times the number of artillery shells that we now are. So like, I don't remember, 30 times. Like, the multiple is ridiculous. It's, we have a tiny, shrunken fraction of what defense production that we used to have. And it's time to build that back. Um, Biden is not going to build that back. Uh, even the plans for increasing production to help Ukraine are anemic and weak. A Republican could do something like what Ronald Reagan did and build back up our defense uh, industrial base and build back up our Navy our Navy is really suffering a lot at the time when China is just China has the world's biggest Navy now by many measures, and they're they're you know continually working to build up more ships. And the ships aren't the ships coming out now are top of the line. They're as good as ours. We need more ships. Uh, Reagan had the six hundred ship Navy. Uh, I not I think they didn't quite reach six hundred ships, but that was the the slogan anyway. Um, and that was that was really important. That assured U.S. naval dominance for another generation. Biden cannot do that. Progressives want to cut defense spending. And a Republican could do that. A Republican could say, we're going to build up the Navy, we're going to restore the defense industrial base, we're going to do what Ronald Reagan did so that we can stand against China. All the pieces are in place rhetorically for that, and there is no Republican yet who looks like he's going to exercise that leadership to do that. There's no Reagan you know, in the Republican Party who can exercise the leadership to, to build back up our deterrent capability. And Democrats won't do it. And so Vivek could have been that. You know, he could have been a Reagan type. But he chose to not be and chose to instead be this, you know, sort of a goofy showman. And it annoys me. Do you want to talk more about Vivek? Because there's more bad Vivek ideas, especially in immigration. <laughs> let's do it. I also want to... So let's get into the... This is, is, I agree. It's a very bad idea, the sort of the test to get citizenship. Um, we'll have you describe it in a second. But I also want to make sure we talk about his ideas to kind of dismantle the administrative state. Because there, there is a very aggressive way of speaking about that. Um, but there's also I, I see some similarities with some of this, at least spiritually, with some of the stuff that that you and Ezra and folks are doing on in sort of the abundance movement in terms of, you know, making government less complicated um, or making it easier to do stuff. So I'm curious where you see overlap and difference. So, first of all, this is something I don't expect political candidates to understand yet, because even intellectuals don't really understand this yet in America, which is that the um, the the administrative state is, can help us against the regulatory state. So and, and the nonprofit state. So what progressives have done uh, over the course of the last 40, 50 years is to increase uh, regulations like NEPA that often have no actual content. They just gum things up. Um, and they've also outsourced a lot of core government functions to nonprofits. Bureaucracy, increasing the bureaucracy, the administrative state can help. It's, it's not, you know, we need to deregulate, obviously, but if we have a, a, had a bunch more and better bureaucrats, A, they could hack through a lot of that regulation and figure out which regulations need to go, which are, which are the key stumbling blocks, right? Um, so bureaucrats can do that. 
And uh, bureaucrats can also replace nonprofits. And you're still spending government money either way. You're just not spending it through the, the nonprofits just grift and waste. And so the nonprofit state has absolutely eaten the progressive project in America, building up. So progressives need to be supporting a, a bureaucracy. We need to bring back the bureaucrats and support the administrative state. Cutting the civil service will not help our regulatory problem. It will hurt it. And it did hurt it. It's one of the reasons we outsource all this stuff to nonprofits is because we retain the capacity to push money out the door. We don't retain the capacity to, to actually determine how that money is spent. So instead, we shovel it toward these grifting nonprofits like the people in San Francisco who claim to like, build housing for the homeless and really just pay themselves out. The administrative state, the, the, the death of the administrative state is what allowed that to happen because we're still spending government money. We're just spending it through a whole bunch of private grifters in the nonprofit sector. And so when we talk about cutting government, we should talk about cutting regulation and cutting spending on nonprofits. We shouldn't be talking about cutting the administrative state. It's actually an ally. I don't expect any Republican to get up there and say that, all right? No Republican can say that. Uh, and that's a shame. You know, in Japan, their equivalent of the Republicans are strongly pro-bureaucrat, right? The, the, the LDP in Japan, the ruling conservative party, which has been ruling most of the time since uh, 1950s, they are strongly pro-bureaucrat. And so Americans, Republicans, America's conservatives could afford to be more like Japan's conservatives in that way. But we're, they're not. And I can't expect Vivek to be that way. Um, in, so, but when Vivek talks about cutting the administrative state, you know, most Republicans will get up there and, and just name some, name some departments they're going to abolish. All those, and they always start with the Department of Education. I'll stop, abolish the Department of Education. Well, that would be bad, but it wouldn't be catastrophic. But, you know, Vivek says, I'm going to abolish the FBI. That's dumb. And I understand that it comes from negative polarization because FBI investigated Trump or something like that, you know. After the FBI helped Trump get elected, then they investigated him, and so now we hate the FBI. But like, so I understand that's where that's coming from. But at the same time, um, the FBI is who does counter espionage. So if you abolish the FBI, there will be literally no one to stop Chinese spies from penetrating everything in our nation. So, you know, Vivek is just like he's like, I will abolish every defense against Chinese spying. If he got up there and said this, would they clap? I hope not. Um, but, but that's effectively what he's saying. Demolish, like abolish the FBI is just, just rock stupid. But it, what it shows is that he doesn't know what the FBI does. He doesn't know who the FBI is. He hasn't read the Wikipedia on FBI, right? He does not understand the very basics of what they do. He's simply stringing together words and sentences that he thinks will, will get him applause from Republican base. He's, he's trying to chat GPT it, but he's not as good as actual chat GPT. Uh, so instead, he's just coming out this stuff. Like, as soon as, as, soon as Democrat, as, if he were to become a, the candidate and were to get up there and say in a debate, I'm going to abolish the FBI, and Biden said, abolish the FBI, man. That's who guards us against Chinese spies. What does he say to that? Ah, ah, like he just makes his like smiley face and like just he doesn't know what to say to that. He just sort of freezes up. And when these conservative uh, pundits like Hannity or, or Hugh Hewitt or whatever have been challenging him, he just sort of like he freezes up because like he was just he strung together some bullshit without having any idea what he was talking about. And um, yeah, I mean, he tried to pull a very fast sales job and it just didn't work. He, he's not going to be the nominee. The question is, after Trump, is he the favorite? Like in 2028 or 2032 or, you know, like he's not, I'll bet, I'll bet against him. I'll, I'll, I'll bet against Vivek ever being a presidential nominee. Who, who would you pick instead? Like, or meaning who in, in the candidate right now or is most likely? 
Well, you know, DeSantis kind of flamed out a little bit because he was unchar- he's uncharismatic. Um, and he's just like, yeah, he, his instincts are not amazing. Um, he's a little bit like the Elizabeth Warren of the right in some ways. Uh, but um, Glenn Youngkin, Greg Abbott, there's a bunch of, of Republican governors waiting in the wings who are very popular in their states and who, you know, um, Glenn Youngkin is, uh, could deliver Virginia, which has become a sort of a reliable blue state in presidential elections, but if they could flip that, it would be a huge electoral advantage. Uh, so so Youngkin, I would, I would keep my eye on him. He's waiting in the wings. He's waiting for Trump to go away and for DeSantis to flame out, and then he's going to run for president. Um, and he has the sunny Reagan disposition, and is probably smart enough to actually do some Reagan things. So if we're looking for a future Reagan, I would keep my eye on Glenn Youngkin. Um, Greg Abbott could also throw it in the ring. You know, we could have um, conservative FDR. We could have disabled, disabled conservative guy. Um, and I think that that would, uh, you know, that would probably play well with with the base. You know, his sort of like, um, because uh, as I as I always tell everybody, the most the most powerful like alpha power move you can ever do is to sit down in a room of people who are still standing. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably FDR's. <laughs> but, um, so then uh, you're definitely the boss in that case. No no ambiguity. Abbott has been just a stalwart conservative. He's more like a, a he he's more charismatic than DeSantis. He's smarter than DeSantis. Uh, and he has done a lot of the things DeSantis has done, but there was a lot less pushback. He just did it. And, and, and Texas is not a swing state, but the Republican, both Republicans and Democrats have very good record with sending Texas politicians to the White House. From LBJ to George W. Bush, Texas... Texas power translates well to the White House. I mean, to, to, to get, I mean, like, obviously, George W. Bush wasn't a great president, but, um, but uh, hmm, now, now that I think of it, maybe LBJ and George W. Bush both prosecuted unnecessary wars, so maybe that's a drawback to Texas. We're a little, we're a little of an aggressive people. But I, so I would, I would keep an eye on Greg Abbott, I would think. Uh, I think DeSantis is a possibility, but he's, he's sort of, um, he's not exciting a lot of people. Um, and, uh, and he's going to go up against Trump, who's going to ether him and destroy his career. And so, you know, he, he's not going to recover from that, I think. He doesn't have the, you know, someone with more stature, like, would, would be able to recover and actually defeat Trump, but he doesn't. Uh, he's also, yeah, he's real short, too. I don't know. But, yeah, so, so I think the Republicans have plenty of bench. You know, it's just that they're not sending their bench, they're not sending their good bench against Trump. The only, the only establishment Republican figure that is getting sent against Trump is, is DeSantis. And then there's a bunch of has-beens, and then there's the novelty candidate, Vivek, who just, you know, the novelty candidates, our election cycle's too long, right? Uh, we, our election cycle lasts a year and a half every four years. And if we just focused on Biden and Trump from day one, who are going to be the nominees, if we just focused, unless one of them dies or gets put in prison, I don't know. But they're, those are going to be the nominees. And, and so um, if we just focused on them from day one, everyone would get bored by November of the next year. Right. And so instead we focus on these novelty candidates. Like you can remember all kinds of these candidates in the past. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, totally. Herman Cain. Remember, are you old enough to remember Herman Cain? <laughs> yeah. The nine, nine, nine plan. I don't remember what the nine stood for, but I remember, I remember that. Right. It's like, um, Herman Cain was, was a big wow. deal. And he, he outpolled Romney for like a hot minute. He outpolled the front runner. Vivek isn't coming close to outpolling Trump. Like not even in the same galaxy. Like, He's a he's a novelty candidate, you know. We, RFK Jr. But RFK is old. He's never he's never done anything. I mean, the thing about Vivek is that he's he's come out of nowhere. He's young, and he's got money, 
and he's got charisma. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I, I he he's totally new to this stuff, so he's he's rough around the edges or doesn't know what he's talking about in in, in many things, but he might learn. My my litmus test for someone running for president is the following. If they failed to run for president, would they run for governor or senator? If the only political office someone's interested in is president, they're not a serious politician. And of course, Trump, that means Trump, right? Trump would never run for governor or something. He's not a ser- he wasn't a serious politician, but he, he won. Um, it, does Vivek have that kind of populist uh, support? No. Um, that kind of populist support, even Trump, like it was, it was a very close run thing in 2016. And that was like the biggest populist upheaval we've we've had since like, you know, I don't even know, in in anyone's living memory. And yet it was this massive special populist moment. And it was just barely enough to get Trump past the finish line with some favorable electoral college geographic math. And um, and Trump was this reality star. Everyone knew him. He was this rich, you know, like tall, charismatic guy that like. Uh, you know, had the speaking style that was much more natural. You know, I could feel Trump's charisma. Not any, he, He's sort of going downhill now, and I can't feel it any, as much. But in 2015, when I saw Trump, like, speak, it looked, at the, at the Republican debates, he looked like the only human among a, a group of robots. It was insane. The difference was insane. Vivek doesn't give that at all. Trump has a little bit of that left, but, but mostly he just, he sounds like he's a rambly old guy now. And I think that's why he'll... One, one of the reasons why he'll, he'll lose it when, he, when he runs this time. Trump sounds like a reality TV show host. Vivek sounds like a reality TV show contestant. This might be a good note to wrap on. This was a, a thorough skewing of, of Vivek and be interesting to see in, uh, as we get closer to election. Hey, was this like RFK Jr., just a flash in the pan? Or does he go from 10 12% to you know, a, a, a much higher? When he's a flash in the pan... Uh, when it when it proves that he was a flash in the pan, we'll come back and and I'll get to say I told you why, but but in fact I'll be lying, right? I'll be lying because I didn't. That's not really why. the The real reason why is that like the Republican Party isn't just isn't yet prepared to accept him, no matter his ideas. He could have all these smart ideas that I would like him to have, and it wouldn't make a damn bit of difference. He'd still be a flash in the pan, because he's brown, because he's elite, because. Because, because he's brown, because he's not culturally, you know, like he doesn't come from the same cultural background as these people, uh, as, as Republican people. He doesn't really understand them. Like his Mad Libs are partly a function yep. of the fact that he doesn't actually understand conservative culture. Like he doesn't listen to country music. He doesn't, um, you know, like Republicans are like boat dealers. So he doesn't understand. Yeah. He would never hang out with boat dealers in real life. He doesn't understand the culture of it. And he doesn't really understand the culture wars. He's, he's interposing himself between like um you know your average republican does not give a shit about whether or not smart asian people are being discriminated against by harvard your average republican wants (laughs) to bomb harvard so like you know they they just don't want all these educated progressives inventing new terms they have to say and like while he's nominally aligned with with the culture war stuff of the right because you know it's like he's he's sort of vaguely on their general side he doesn't understand them at a deep enough level to speak. You know, Trump understood it so intuitively. He said things like, we never win anymore. That is a, that's an idea that Vivek doesn't understand. Like, he doesn't understand the idea of America winning against other nations as like a, a populist thing that people on the right resonate with, right? He's actually thinking about the welfare of some of those other nations. You know, he's, he's, Vivek is thinking about like the good of like 
developing nations. Republicans don't think about the good of developing nations, and no one cares. Like, no, no Republican cares if, like, you know, India or Vietnam or whatever burns fossil fuels. They don't give a shit. <laughs> like, and Vivek, you know, Vivek does. And that's good. You know, I like that he cares about that. It's good to care about that. I care about developing nations as well. But it's not something, you know, he's going to get rejected by the Republican base for reasons that have nothing to do with what I wrote in this column. In this column, what I'm saying is that tech needs a better candidate. Honestly, that candidate, so, so tech needs someone either who can unify the sort of technocratic needs of the country with the concerns of either the Republican or the Democratic base. That's what they need. That is exactly what they need. They need someone who speaks the language of the base, but understands, you know, is a, is a competent technocrat as well and understands how to, you know, how to run the country because, you know, because they've run a business or something. Vivek sold a business. I mean, did he even, he didn't even really like, you know, like Elon Musk, who can't run for president because he's not born here, but he, he has run big businesses before. He has run Tesla. He has run SpaceX. You know, he delegates a lot of it, but he does a lot of it himself, right? And, um, and so there are, there are sort of conservative people out there who have run big businesses in the tech world who could run for office and who could translate that expertise into political acumen and who would be much more equipped than Vivek. You know, I don't know that Elon Musk himself would, would understand, you know, red, average red America, middle America either, but he'd do a better job than Vivek. And, um, and there's probably people out there who will do an even better job. Vivek feels like a lot of people in tech want the one, the person, you know, they're, they're disaffected. They don't, you know, Trump is, is culturally anathema to them and does stupid things. But then Biden, you know, puts Lena Khan at the FTC, who's, who's going on a crusade against tech. And like Biden says mean things about like some tech company people and, and, and is allied with like the New York times who hates Facebook and all these things like the tech people feel like they're politically without a home. And in fact, we should do a whole nother, uh, podcast on this where you know tech yeah. tech and politics they feel they feel without a home at, in urban politics where they want you know rational competent government governance you know tough on crime but build more housing like that's not a policy package that you see a lot tech people feel politically homeless and vivek is exciting a lot of tech people because he feels like he can give them a political home and mainstream sort of their tribe and he's not going to he's not the one Let's uh, let's wrap on, on on that as an ending note, as well as a cliffhanger. We'll do that in an upcoming episode. Uh, Noah, uh, great job as always. Thanks as always. Econ 102 is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen, In the Arena, The Cognitive Revolution, and more. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave us a review in the App Store. You can keep up with both of our Substacks for written analysis of the topics we cover in the show at noahopinion.substack.com and erictornberg.substack.com. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.